Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. It's The Wonky Show. We're talking about the levelling up white paper and what it means for universities. New reports on the experience of black students and staff. A major new report into the experience of disabled students. It's all coming up. What are we doing to diversify um, and, and not just rely on that pipeline which isn't there from below? What are we doing to say to people, to, to people of colour, to black people in other sectors, hey, look, higher education is a place where we want you to work. You may not have the typical academic experience and, and, and life that is expected, but we absolutely need that diversity to come and strengthen our institutions. Welcome to The Wonky Show, your weekly way into this week's higher education news, policy and analysis. I'm Wonky's editor-in-chief, Mark Leach, and here to help us level up the HG policy debate this week, we have three fabulous guests. In Gravesend, it's Selena Bolingbrook, independent higher education consultant, amongst other things. Selena, hello, your highlight of the week. Uh, good morning, Mark. Uh, my highlight of the week comes from an adult education class that I started last year uh, in stained glass, and I actually completed my second piece earlier this week, so feeling like a real achievement and how wonderful adult education is. In South East London, it's HE consultant and uh, all-round general good egg, Amity Doku. Amity, your uh, highlight of the week, please. Hi, Mark. Um, yeah, my highlight of the week is, is a bit of an unusual one. I was in um, court yesterday uh, giving evidence um, f- um, supporting my um, uh, alma mater, um, uh, Cam- Jesus College, Cambridge, in the removal of a plaque to a slave trader that they've got in the um, in the chapel. So um, I had been working um, with some alumni to support this work and I was cross-examined by two barristers, which was a fun thing to do on a Wednesday morning. And in Exeter, it's Wonky's associate editor, Sunday Blake. Sunday, you're hired of the week, please. I had a really good evening yesterday because my uh, neighbour from Afghanistan brought me round a sort of smorgasbord if I can use a German word, uh, of like Afghan food. Um, and it was amazing. So I'm really happy with that. We start the week with levelling up white paper. Selena, what's in it? Yeah, it was all over the airwaves uh, yesterday, which was uh, Wednesday when it was published. I think for many people, both policy watchers uh, and uh, institutions across the country, this, it, this has been a policy paper a long time in the waiting. Um, this, of course, was the big dog's big idea uh, right from 2019 when he won the election. But arguably, it's been on the conservative agenda in terms of this levelling up inequalities going back to to. Theresa May's time. Um, So huge anticipation. Um, We can say it's a huge document, uh, all 332 pages of it and all 442 footnotes. Um, I say that because there was always that sense that I got both as a student and when I uh, taught in higher education that sometimes the weight of a document can somewhat distract from the content. Um, and I think that we've already seen that there's a lot of critics that have used words like vague and disappointing and lack scale to describe their reaction to what sits in the levelling up white paper. Um, I think my sense was that it amounted to 
a lot of projects and it didn't really even feel like a program of activity and much less so genuine system reform, albeit there is a whole chapter dedicated to systems reform. Um, so if this was the big dog's big idea, it kind of turned out to be more of a chihuahua size poop. Um, I think for universities, there's some, some kind of, there are references to universities quite often as important partners. Um, but no particular initiative that I would say is directed at trying to get universities to really take on a major role in leveling up. There is, of course, things that will impact on universities. So probably one of the biggest uh, areas is this sh uh, proposed shift of research and development funding uh, pretty much out of the southeast. Although at the same time, there are references to we don't want to damage the healthy uh, innovation ecosystems we've got. So quite how they pull off that balancing act or rebalancing act of taking funds away from some regions and locating them in others without there being real net growth in that funding is going to be difficult. And I think, you know, one of the biggest criticisms, regardless of which sector you're looking at this paper from, is the fact there is no real significant new funding attached to it. So a lot of the 332 pages is actually referring to uh, projects that are already in place. Um, policies that have already been ongoing for quite some time. Um, there is this kind of nod to the importance of the university's civic role, um, again, sort of emphasising their partner status. Um, I thought one of the, again, it's sort of, it's only a couple of paragraphs, but the other thing that is announced is that universities are, well, they've announced nine new institutes of technology. Um, there was already 12 that were there, and these have largely been in the FE sector. Um, but of the new nine, there's uh, three that are led by universities, Derby, Salford and Solent. Um, and again, the, these are these are not sort of incredibly well-funded institutions, but these institutions can now apply for a royal charter, which uh, they claim will put them on the same level as world-leading universities. Um, well, I think talking to new providers in the sector, we'll 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 see how that runs runs along. Um, so, I guess one of the things that and sort of picking up on what Selena just mentioned, I think one of the things which is quite interesting is that the <laughs> the white paper does <laughs> acknowledge the role that um, higher education institutions play. It says HE institutions have a vital part to play in supporting regional economies. Um, but it doesn't then go on to say <laughs> how A, that can be um, supported and kind of what role, what more active role that the, the HE sector has to play in this. It's sort of like, well, universities are sort of doing this stuff um, already and that's fine. And, and, and sort of OFS has been set up, which means that it's easier for there to be more providers, but that's kind of it. And, and I think this is the real missed opportunity. Um, we've heard of the, the new Institute of Technology. I, I would question, if you think about it, you know, is the infrastructure for that stuff already there in the sector? Probably. We've got a hugely um, diverse and um, capable sector to take on some of these challenges. So I, I don't know. I, it feels like a really big missed opportunity to think about that critical role that the HE sector, it sort of describes what higher education does at the moment, it doesn't really give any agency. Um, and obviously, if it did that, we'd have to give money, which is probably why um, they've not they've not done I think, that. I think that's a really interesting point about finance and about, you know, where is this money going to come from? And this is, this is a little bit tangential, but um, it, when they were sort of talking about, you know, devolving power and responsibility um, amongst sort of different areas of the UK, it, it 
brought my mind back to that. Do you remember that meme of Andy Burnham when uh, the central government denied him £75 million to get Manchester through lockdown? And I was just thinking that, you know, I mean, Andy Burnham, born and bred Manchunian, all, by all means, an incredibly competent politician who knew exactly what his area needed, and he was refused that by central government. And I feel like a lot of these missions don't actually have an obvious path to delivery. So my concern is, is it devolving power or is it rescinding responsibility? Um, I read this really interesting blog yesterday by Ben Johnson, who's he, he works in university now, but he was a former advisor to three UK science ministers. And he stressed that throughout this whole paper, like, where is the accountability? Um, you know, I'm taught, and, and, but I'm, I'm giving an example of a mayor of Manchester who's, who's relatively top tier, you know, an expert in, in exactly what his area needs being denied. And I sort of think, well, what hope is there for sort of smaller local authorities against that? Yeah, I think Cindy picks up on a good point there, because despite the um, whole chapter on systems reform, all they're really promising is more of the same in terms of the type of devolution, mayors, combined authorities. And I think you have to ask, where is this taking power and resource from? So it should be taking power and resource from Whitehall. But I think too often it feels like it's sucking up power and indeed resource from local authorities. And I think that point about the scale of resource, it is an important one. And I think we'll probably see that come out in the analysis, the deeper analysis over the next few days. But just on adult skills, they've promised 200,000 new training places by 2030. Now, that sounds a lot, it's a big number, but it actually only replaces a quarter of the places that were mm. lost in 2010 when the funding cuts really hit the FE mm. sector hard. And, and the 18 to 16 funding, even if this was actualised, is still going to be 10% less than 2010. So it's sort of, I feel a little bit like we're having the wall pulled over eyes a little bit by saying, oh, look at all the, these great increases. And it's like, yeah, but we're still, we're still in a deficit compared to 2010. Yeah, I, I think the other thing is just to think about how this, you know, how they take this forward. The thinnest thing, thing about this document is the conclusion and the next steps. So they talk about a cabinet committee to coordinate. Now, that's not the kind of heaviest device in the machinery of government, quite frankly. But I think for universities in particular, what we need to think about is how this exerts pressure on the government's uh, eventual response to auger and, and what that throws up for the sector. So I think it's more influence uh, than real real power. It, it reads to me like the, the Treasury went through the, the document and, and literally just put a red line through every single recommendation or spending commitment at the end of each at the end of each section, which there must have been a whole bunch. And I mean, it's, it's, yeah, it's just missing a section. But but I think that, that does create opportunity. Lisa, I mean, Lisa Nandi um, said yes, and this, this um, struck me. Um, she said in Parliament yesterday that uh, for every one pound the North put in, no, sorry, for every 13 pounds the North put in, they're only getting one pound back. So again, it, it feeds into that kind of like regional divide and like unfairness. I also just wonder how this is going to land politically, because this is what it's designed to do, isn't it? You know, this is looking two years down the line. And I think actually, you think about the news today, cost of living, energy, none of those issues are actually going to go away quickly. And I think any sense of, you know, the warmth and benefit to the people of Hartlepool is going to be wiped out, because actually, the more immediate pressures are going to overwhelm before there's any sense of benefit from whatever levelling up programme is put in place. Right, let's see who's been blogging for us this week. 
I'm Ant Bagshaw, Partnerships Director at OES. And with my colleague, Andrea Burrows, we've written for Wonky this week about online education strategies. To do this, we've reflected on some of the conversations that we've had with universities up and down the country about how to develop an, an online portfolio and in a way which is consistent with an institution's unique mission and values. We've offered some questions which might help your thinking about how to develop an, an online education strategy. Let us know what you think. Now, uh, there's been a bunch of new reports and data out this week about black uh, students and staff. Amity, talk us through it. Yes, that's right. So we've had um, a couple of things come through. We've got the new research report from Unite Students on the experiences of black students in university accommodation. Um, and sort of the headline really is that they have a much less positive experience than, than white students. Uh, and, and a lot of that points to the lack of culturally appropriate and services and representation amongst staff. And I think really it goes back to something which I've um, been, been trying to get a conversation going about more recently, which is around taking that um, when you're thinking about tackling inequalities um, and racial inequalities, you've got to take, for the, from the student's point of view, you've got to take a, a student life cycle approach. It doesn't matter, and you know, there's some fantastic work going on in higher education, but it, honestly, it doesn't matter how much time, effort, energy you're plowing into, you know, decolonizing your curriculum in the classroom and improving that experience if when they leave the classroom, um, they face a really negative experience of racism as they walk into their halls all that work is undone because students don't experience their uh, university experience in, in compartments. They experience it as a whole. Uh, and, and you hear um, uh, in, in the report, um, these, um, uh, you know, concerns, these real um, uh, issues in relation to the impact that this is having on, on their mental health. And again, when we're talking about the mental health support that these students need, you can't take that away from the experience in, in accommodation in other places. So it really calls for, and I think it's a really timely and encouraging um, report to really get us to think about that whole student life cycle, what we're doing to support students across the piece. But of course, we've also had um, the report from um, the data release from HESA, which again shows just how far we've got to go. Um, the number of black professors um, in, in the UK um, remaining at just 160 out of uh, nearly 18,000. Just how far we've got to go in, in uh, diversifying um the staff in in our universities as well, and and I'm yet to see a really clear, comprehensive approach and sector wide strategy to do this. Whether we need to think about bringing people from other industries uh, into the sector, are we? We've seen some really good things about um, you know projects to to get people into postgraduate research, black students into postgraduate research, but there needs to be more of that because we're not going to get the results from that in, in, for many years to come. Um, so, yeah, a, a lot of really um, interesting... Another report, of course, by um, the Institute of uh, Community Studies and Guild HE on postgraduate research, which links directly to that point. Again, it needs that really holistic approach to thinking about how we diversify um, our um, staff and how we improve the experience for students. I think on that point as well, especially on the point with students, um, it's really important that, we're, that we think about this in, in an intersectional way. I mean... There are only 160 black professors, but of those 160, only 25 are women. So there's like sort of layer upon layer of inequality in the system. Um, and I think w one of the other things that came out this week that I see it, I, I do see a little bit of synchronicity too with these reports is that the NUS are doing a survey on student union officers um, and their experiences of like harassment and abuse. Um, and obviously it's, coming up student election season as well um, and just from my time in student unions the 
the people who experience the worst time, you know, the students who come out the end and sit, because I, I, I love my time as a student officer, it's something I'm never going to forget, but um, it's always women of colour coming out and saying that was horrendous, um, who resign early, who leave their post, um, who, who get um, sl- slandered in national newspapers, who, um, you, you know, don't, aren't as active on social media as, as other officers and I just hope that when these um when these areas are looked at in terms of accommodation and universities that one student unions are consulted because that's important to have that student voice there but also that they they are included as part of this movement because you know every every single area in higher education exists as a microcosm of the world at large um student unions aren't perfect places if a woman of color is having a terrible time in halls of residence she's not going to run for office if she does run for office she normally has a bad time um and then to compound that the support and role modeling that a lot of subs that they say that they get from academics don't really exist when there's only 25 women of colour in the country. Um, so it paints a dire picture, really. Selena, coming back to this uh, piece of work from Unite about um, experience in, in accommodation, I mean, it, it feels like, I mean, and, and, that's, and that piece of data about, uh, about black, black academics feels like, that feels like a bit, bit of like a, a grim annual ritual. We, you know, we get this number and, and the, the sector kind of hangs its head in shame. Um, and as Amity's saying, you know, there, there's, there's a sort of lack of a, of a national strategy, lots of kind of projects, but not, not a coherent approach. So, I mean, what is to be, what is, what is to be done? I don't know. If you were in charge, done, if you but... were, you know, if you were, you know, head of the sector, vice chancellor of the, you know, UK universities, all of them together. I think what we actually, in some ways, you can see it quite, quite simply. I don't know about head of the sector, but if I was head of an institution, I think we need a really strong action plan to addressing some of the factors that run across all of these issues. And I would say one of the most important ones is the staff profile within universities, both academic staff and professional staff. Um, I think when the universities that I've worked in, which are largely, but not all within London, five or six different ones, um, all within fairly ethnically diverse areas, still had a gross imbalance in terms of the racial profile of staff. And I think the staff experience has a huge amount of impact on the student experience. Um, I think that too often I've seen universities make laudable commitments to addressing the issue, but there isn't enough action and that action isn't evaluated and people aren't held accountable. And in some ways, I think they probably need to pick two or three issues and take some risks, try some new things, do some radical things. But I think we, when we looked at the last kind of uh, lot of statistics about graduate outcomes, we, we had a very similar uh, debate, which is this has been around, evidenced for the last 25 years. But at this rate of progress, it will be another 50 years before there is any chance of significantly closing the gap in the outcomes between white and black students. So I think that, 
you know, the other thing that I would uh, say about this is, although this is a report largely around the experience of accommodation, it does underline that the importance of the whole student experience and actually some of the factors that I'll mention there, for example, some students feeling like they needed to return home at weekends to get back into their family and their peer networks to get support that's going to impact on their wider engagement in university life. And that lack of engagement will impact on their achievement and it will impact on their employability. So looking at things in the round is really important for for institutions. I just think getting real with actions, doing things, trying things and involving the people that you're talking about. I think, you know, Sunday's mentioned that, but it's critical. There are two distinct areas which need to be fixed in relation to diversifying um, the academy, as it were. So on the one hand, you've got to fix the pipeline. We know that there's a big drop-off of students, partly, I imagine, due to the attainment gap. There's a big drop-off of students um, going from undergraduate to postgraduate, um, uh, particularly postgraduate research, which then takes them into into the academic pipeline. Uh, the, the problem is, let's say you had a, we had a magic wand and we fixed that today. <laughs> We're not going to see the um, benefits of that really for at least 10, 20, 30 years time as those people progress their careers and, and progress through the system. So my question is, what are we doing to diversify um, and, and not just rely on that pipeline which isn't there from below? What are we doing to say to people to, to people of colour, to black people in other sectors, hey, look, higher education is a place where we want you to work. You may not have the typical academic experience and, and, and life that is expected but we absolutely need that diversity to come and strengthen our institutions and we know at senior levels but increasingly there are people who are coming in from outside the sector and I think that's that's a good thing that's that's a positive thing but we need to start thinking about how we start to attract um, senior black um, individuals to come across from other sectors and to see themselves with a future in the sector and at the moment I haven't seen very much in that vein at all. Uh, it's Jim from the team here and very excited to say that in February our event The Secret Life of Students is back. Uh, now in its third year it's all about how we rethink the student experience, bringing together experts, sector leaders and professionals as well as student leaders and student junior managers to tackle difficult challenges and work together to transform higher education to better meet the needs of the next generation of students. This year we're doing diversity differently, rethinking the outdated model of designing learning environments based on an imagined normal student student and then applying sticking plaster interventions based on diverse student characteristics. Uh, we'll reflect on the findings of the UPP Foundation Student Futures Commission. We'll consider developments in regulatory regimes for access, diversity and equality. We'll have a wealth of new insight to share from our own research with students and higher education professionals and leaders. And we'll think through how engaging with students' lived experience can transform strategy, policy and delivery. And we'll consider what students are experiencing and saying about harassment and discrimination and where the boundaries are between security and freedom. All of that, lots more. The Secret Life of students london february the 15th to find out more and book tickets go right now to wonky.com forward slash events now it's time for yes but does it correlate here to set this week's correlation question is wonky's associate editor david kernahan welcome to yes but does it correlate the podcast segment that is all about leveling up r squared to three significant figures some people describe provider-level university league tables as blunt instruments that distort the true diversity of the higher education sector and are of interest only to anxious vice-chancellors. 
Today I've plotted a provider's ranking in the Complete University Guide lead table from 2008 against the latest ranking in 2022. These 14 years have seen many changes in the higher education sector, but is the older table still a good statistical means of predicting performance in the new one? Does it correlate? I'm going to say no, it doesn't correlate. I think some potentially some institutions have been doing some really interesting things to, to push that. 14 years feels like a long time. There's been a lot of churn. So I'll I, I say no. Let's see. Um, I would say, like, with the exception of outliers who sort of, like, became part of the Russell group or whatever, I, I, I think that it is a good indication just because of how many factors are needed to... Uh, to raise your ranking and how difficult it can be sometimes um as, as an overall picture obviously some some uh, institutions can but yeah as an overall picture i'm going to say that it does correlate based on the rankings of providers that feature in both league tables yes it does r squared is 0.73 making for a strong correlation between 2008 and 2012 in cug ranking terms there is, of course, some movement within the ranking for individual providers, sometimes quite startling. But overall, the difference is not great. As always, the graph is on the podcast page of the Wonky site. Data is from the Complete University Guide, who gets a gold star for publishing reusable data as a CSV, and then immediately loses it for not using UK PRNs within the CSVs. And where the data doesn't exist, I've not plotted it. Now, Sunday, there's been a big report into disabled students this week right so the um there's a disabled students commission report and this was based on uh qualitative data from disabled students themselves um and then it um sets out like a sort of list of recommendations for the sector um where they can improve on areas that are currently um, creating sort of detriment to students, but like particularly during COVID-19. So one of these things is just simplifying processes um, and like creating consistency across institutions when it comes to support. So a lot of um, disabled students will find like if they're doing combined honours, for example, one department will be giving them certain mitigations or support and another department won't. Um, and then obviously students on different courses will find that they're getting different um, treatments. Um, also, things like flexibility in in regards to sort of learning and teaching are needed um, and to improve the disclosure system, um, which is something that most disabled students will say, you know, I've had to disclose and apply so many times to so many members of staff. So the report's asking for a more of a joined up approach there. Um, I think there are two things that I had to reflect on this. Um, I think it is really, this is really important piece of work. Um, and I know that um, since, oh, say since the pandemic, so it's not over, since in-person teaching um, has, has sort of come back, a lot, there's been a lot of noise around um, the fact that disabled students were doing better than um like pre-pandemic times because they suddenly had access to resources that they didn't have before um, and it's really interesting actually because when you looked at um, something like the no detriment policy and you looked at benchmark grades students without a disability genuinely tend to tended to there wasn't much deviation right the benchmarking process was quite an accurate replicate rep, excuse me the benchmarking um, process was an accurate accurate replication of um, what the students could have achieved in, norm, in non 
pandemic times. Um, and I think it's a real shame that a lot of universities have basically come out and said, well, in a non-emergency, we don't need to make these provisions. And um, I remember having a conversation with someone quite senior in a university and my sort of knee-jerk response was, so is it not an emergency when disabled students <laughs> can't access the, the resources that they need to learn? Um, and obviously this goes for staff too. You know, there are staff who who have disabilities or who are clinically vulnerable um, who were helped with with online learning. And I don't actually think that as a as a community, as a national community, I don't think that we, or even as a sector actually, that we've actually even begun to comprehend just how different um, living through a pandemic whilst you're disabled can be. Um, so on one hand, you've got you know access to enhanced resources that are then sort of taken away from you the moment that the general population doesn't need them. But also, you know, universities have been really going like full force into in-person events having festival type events on campus that actually a lot of disabled students um couldn't couldn't go to because they were still shielding or um they hadn't had their second booster or um they there was just a lot of anxiety around attending so it's an important report it's come at a reporting time well i'd say two two things really um one is um very pleased to see a report which um is um you know, really centres on quotations, hearing from the uh, voice voices of those students who've been through it, because I think that's the most powerful thing. You know, it's arguably easier to argue with sort of stats and, and graphs and charts and all the rest of it. Much harder to argue and, and challenge people's experiences. So I think it's so really important. And I think that's a good lesson for other reports. Really have the centrality of those experiences at, at the heart of at the heart of the report. But I think and and you know some of the things you're reading are, are really heartbreaking. And, and for me, the thing that really struck me is that, you know, behind all the sort of the themes and the, and the headings and the titles, what we're really talking about are people who have had really difficult experiences, um, just sort of butting against this, often this bureaucracy where, you know, it takes ages to get a response to something or um, you have to explain the same thing to, to several people. And, and for me, just taking a step back, you know, even broader than, um, the the issues facing disabled students it is the real need, I think, for institutions to say, you know, if we are going to take student experience really seriously, are we taking a student-centred, human-centred approach to the way in which we do things? Links to the earlier conversation we're having around um, equity and diversity and inclusion as well, in general. Um, you know, are we really understanding that at the heart of it, um, we're dealing with um, with um, individuals who are all different? who all have different needs and we need to have a system in place which is, is, is uh, can support that. And at the moment, I don't think um, we've got that. Um, and it's going to require resources, it's going to require really reorganising the way in which um, all the different touch points and the way in which students interact. But you read some of these stories and you just think that we, we, it's not sustainable. We can't have, have systems where students are ex are going through and experiencing this stuff. And, and also, it is not outside the realms of possibility that actually um, you could fix these problems. These are not unsolvable issues. It just requires a bit of leadership to say, you know, we've, we have to completely reorganise the way in which we, we, we do things. And, and that is difficult. It's not easy. Mm. I think what you're saying about um, reorganising the way that we do things is really important. So one of the... Um, one of the things that they were talking about in the report, which I actually disagreed with, and I've got to be very careful because I think this can come across a little bit controversial. And I say this as a sort of 
verified blue badge disabled person. I have to say that because I don't want people to think I'm sort of talking about this from the sidelines. But there was a lot of conversation around disabled students needing like things like extra time in assignments. And it, I understand that. But the thing that the report was pointing out was that under no detriment policies, a lot of students were given 24 hours to do a one hour exam. And the report was saying, well, disabled students still need extra time. And I was thinking like, so so a disabled student who gets 90 minutes for a one hour exam, what do they want 24 and a half hours? Like, I felt that that was missing the point of uh, rearranging an assessment system to be about liberation and they're still focusing it on equity. So it's this idea of like, well, you're disabled, so we have to do this extra step. But actually, I personally feel that what we should be doing is rooting ourselves in in a, in a liberation system where we don't actually have to take extra steps for people, which is what the 24-hour system was about. Now, um, I, you know, those, those systems were um, sort of pioneered off the back of hundreds of thousands of students having such diverse and expansive experiences of the pandemic that there was absolutely no way that they were going to be able to come up with a system of mitigation for every single individual case. Um, and it was an intersectional way of looking at it because it was taken um, into account um, parent students with childcare commitments. It was taken into account international students who would be in a time difference and therefore, you know, need that 24 hours um, to, to, to complete the exam because, you know, it might start while they're asleep. Um, it might start while you're doing the school run. And I felt that whilst the report was fantastic at shining a light on some of the frustrations and um barriers that disabled people face in higher education I think it missed the key point that actually it's not about equity when it comes to these recommendations it should be about liberation which is about designing a system where nobody needs equity um so yeah that was my reflection on on that I wanted to just come in on 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 that point I think it's a really strong one that Cindy makes because I think there's something fundamentally about your approach that really does make a difference I mean, it's absolutely clear that the challenge in going to university shouldn't be about students' abilities to navigate a bureaucratic, narrow system. Um, that, that should just be, but, but clearly that is often the experience uh, that, that students have to battle with. But I think more fundamentally, one of the things that I was always taught about uh, the design of assessment tasks is you need to get it right at the point of design rather than think about possible mitigations later down the line. And the phrase that always comes to my mind uh, that I think I must have been told at that point in, in, in thinking about how to design assessments is that a rising tide will lift all boats. So actually, if we had better assessment, and I think assessment is really, really one of the important issues um, because assessments is still the currency of campus. Um, If we could get that right, it wouldn't just benefit disabled students. I think it would also benefit other student groups who are currently marginalised within the systems that we have. And, and, you know, I really agree with with your um, point about, you know, rising tide raises all boats because there's actually, when, when you come from a disability angle, there are multitudes of students who are currently undiagnosed who have disabilities. ADHD and dyslexia is chronically undiagnosed in in girls, right? So there will be students, um, mental health issues, right? Um, Young men are 
known not necessarily to seek help for their mental health, right? Um, if you've got a chronic illness, it can take years to be diagnosed. Now, the lack of diagnosis does not mean that you are not facing barriers that those um, disabilities impose upon your learning. So actually, it's it, it's yes, it's going to be helping able-bodied students um, or students who have who are neurotypical. It's going to be helping disabled students, but it's actually going to be helping all of those students who are currently being let down by an incredibly um, difficult, unjust medical system as well. So that's about it for this week. Remember to dig a bit deeper into anything we've discussed today. You'll find links in the show notes on wonky.com. Don't forget you can subscribe to the podcast automatically. Just search for The Wonky Show via Spotify, Apple or Google Podcasts or wherever else you listen. And to keep you and your organisation ahead of everything that's going on in the UKHE, do head to the website to find out more about our various subscriptions. So thanks very much to Selena, Amity, Sunday and everyone at Team Wonky that helps make the show happen. Until next week, stay wonky. Stay wonky.